Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Marissa Silver, whose latest novel is Little Nothing. This is her sixth novel. Other novels include Mary Coyne, The God of War, Alone With You, which is a collection. Formerly a filmmaker early in her career with four movies, Old Enough, Permanent Record, Vital Signs, He Said, She Said, given that your parents worked in films, including your mother, Joan Micklin Silver, that would be the start. But then you made a change and started a second career. Yeah. I started making films in my 20s. And I made all those films you just mentioned in my 20s. And I had a great time. But by the time I was finished with the last one, I had this very strong sense that I was telling stories in the wrong medium and that the stories that I wanted to tell, which tended to be you know, more character-driven, more about the nuances between and among people, was not really the stuff of most films. I mean, the, the very few smaller films and getting fewer by the day, as we all know from looking at what's in the movie theaters. So I decided to make a switch and I stopped making films, kind of cold turkey, and I put myself into graduate school and studied writing and then began to do it in earnest. And it was a really great choice for me. It was sort of like I was on a very fast moving train in the film world, but it was the wrong train. And so I got off and, and it was a good move. It looked like the last thing you did was an L.A. law. Mm -hmm. And I guess at that point when you're going, do I really want to do TV shows or do I want to be creative? No, I mean, I I don't think that was it so much because you're always interspersing big projects with small projects. That just happened to be the last thing that I did. It was just a very profound sense that, you know, I didn't have the fire in my belly to make the next movie. I had the fire in my belly to write. So that's what I wanted to do. Before we leave that area... Did finding financing and that whole thing, did that play a role in... in Not so much. The first film I made, Old Enough, was independently financed. But beyond that, they were all studio films, so I really wasn't involved in the financing of them. I think what played a role in it was aesthetics and a sense of who I wanted to be as a artist, for want of a better word, and what the best medium for me to be able to express myself in was. And it didn't feel like it was movies. You started, though, with short stories. You went back Mm -hmm. to school and you deliberately worked on the short story. I did, and I think one of the reasons I did that was because short stories were the first... The first kind of fiction that I really loved as a young person. I wasn't a particularly strong reader when I was a kid. I was a terrible reader, actually. I spent most of my time daydreaming. But when I started to read, what I was able to read, because they were short, was short stories. And I fell in love with the stories of Fitzgerald and Hemingway and Eudora Welty and Flannery O'Connor. And um, those were sort of the, the doorways into fiction for me. So I think when I began to write myself, it was very natural that I would want to sort of write a form that was had a lot of meaning to me personally. What got you off short stories and into writing novels then? 
Well, I think probably the market, you know, publishers generally buy a collection of short stories, a debut collection, and then also want you to write a novel next because short stories are wonderful, but they are harder to market than novels. So I wrote my first novel and then fell in love with that form. I mean, I, I had not yet before that spent two and a half, three years on any on a project. And I found the time that it took to write a novel created a different rhythm of creativity. It created a different way of thinking about how to write scenes, how to, how to make stories flow over time that was really incredibly entrancing to me. With short stories, it's all about economy. And they have to be, you know, they're sort of acrobatic feats of compression. And a short story at its best should encompass an entire universe in the way that a novel does in a pressure cooker. I found it incredibly um, gratifying to sort of have the breadth and space of a novel and the time, the, the kind of that, that you could slow down, you could speed up. It didn't require this kind of, you know, juggernaut of a kind of rhythm to get the story out. The general structure of a film is the three-act structure. Mm-hmm. Was that in the back of your mind? Did you want to throw that away? I mean, there's sort of a three-act structure in Little Nothing. Actually, it's four. There are four different yeah. sections, not three. But it seems that that would somehow be ingrained. Did you even think in those terms at all when you were writing? You know, not at all. And I think one of the pleasures of turning to fiction was also being able to let go of those sorts of sometimes confining ideas about form. And I think the more that I write, the more that I'm interested in sort of loosening up and being extremely free and more inventive with structure. I mean, as a matter of fact, in Little Nothing, this most recent novel, the story starts off being about this young girl named Pavla, and we follow her for quite a while on her various adventures, which I guess we'll talk about. And then for the middle third of the story, she's really not there. You know, she kind of drops out. She becomes someone who's thought about and talked about, but she's not present. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, I never would have done early in my writing career, certainly never done in my filmmaking career, but it was liberating to do now as a writer because, you know, stories can be told in so many different ways. And what makes something captivating and resonant is has nothing to do with con- conforming to a typical structure. And I think the only way that you can escape that in film is if you're someone like David Lynch and you have the impetus and the money behind you to try something yeah. like that. I mean, there, there are amazing filmmakers who do, especially foreign filmmakers, but it's certainly harder in a kind of more, you know, Hollywood vein of things. But I also think that, you know, we're so beset by visual narrative right now. You know, we're in this kind of, quote unquote, golden age of television. And, you know, we see a typical structure all the time. It's sort of now becoming, you know, it's deep in our soul, the, the sense of how structure works in a filmic story. That's there. You know, there's wonderful television shows. There's wonderful films. So let's do something different with books. Let's let's use it for all that, you know, the difference that it can do. The old idea of having the gun in the handbag and you have to pull it out. In your case, you would have a gun in a handbag and then maybe later on there's a sword. I mean, it completely uh, upends expectations, which I guess is part of what you're trying to do. Yeah, with little nothing. I mean, the story is about a young girl named Pavla who lives in a sort of unidentified Eastern European village in an unidentified time in the early 20th century. And she's born a dwarf to the 
chagrin of her parents who have had her when they're quite old. She's sort of reviled by her community for her difference, and she's loved by her parents, but they worry for her. They don't know how that she will make a life for herself. And so in a very unusual moment, they decide that they will seek the help of various charlatan doctors around, and one of them suggests that she be stretched. That comes from reading about the last munchkin? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The impetus for this book was that I um, had been reading an obituary about the, uh, one of the final munchkins who had been alive. And in, in among all the Wizard of Oz stuff in the obituary was this very small detail, which said that when this man, who was born a dwarf in the early part of the 20th century, was born, his parents had tried to stretch him. And obviously it didn't work, but I was so kind of gobsmacked by that notion. And I immediately thought to myself, but what if it had worked? Marissa Silver, let's go back a second. Okay, so Mary Coyne had come out. It's a hyper-realistic novel about three women over two different time periods. When you're suddenly getting this idea of what happens at that point, had you said, hey, I'm going to write a fairy tale? No, not at all. I think all of my fiction up until now has been sort of decidedly in the realistic fiction camp and also often very kind of socially real. You know, the, the fiction has a lot to do with social realities and how they impact families. Or, And I think that when I finished Mary Coyne, I had this very gut feeling that the next piece of work that I did, because Mary Coyne was steeped in history and steeped in, in research, being about the Depression, based on real characters, was that I wanted to do something purely imaginative. I didn't want to do anything that was sort of keyed to a, t a particular time or place in history. And so that was my just gut instinct where I wanted to go aesthetically as a writer. And then when I read that detail and it became so um, moving to me, I think that I, I moved into the realm of fable, not so much fairy tale, which I mean maybe has a, a connotation which is a little lighter, but sort of a darker fable. Because that detail seemed so fabulous to me. It doesn't seem real. It seemed something out of it, a little bit of surreal. Because I had this instinct that this character would not only be stretched, but then that she would go through a number of uh, transformations in her life in and out of human form. And I knew that in order to ha you know, have the book that had the capacity to include that, it would have to take the form of some kind of tale. Had you experienced reading fantasies? Not at all. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say I, I'm not even sure that I've ever read all of 100 Years of Solitude, which is sort of like the er magical realist text. But no, I'm not a reader of fantasy. I'm not a reader of, you know, sci-fi and nothing that's kind of I, – I read pretty realistic novels. So it was a leap, and it was kind of exciting, actually, to put myself in a – foreign space as a writer and to, and to figure out how I could bring my skills and what I have done for a number of books, which is, you know, kind of close interiority about people's emotional lives vis-a-vis -vis the social situations in which they exist in, how I could marry that to a book that would include and embrace wild imaginative leaps outside of reality. Did you do any research? I know Mary Coyne and the other books had a lot of research was there any you had to do, like maybe how wolves live? There was research. There's a part in the story, we don't want to give away too much, but there is a section of the story all about wolves. And so I did. I read a lot about wolf behavior. I watched a lot of, you know, sort of wolf behavior documentaries. I went and met some wolves, touched some wolves. So that was really wonderful because I really wanted to figure out how to write about wolves, not anthropomorphizing them, but writing about them as wolves. 
and yet, at the same time, creating characters that a reader is going to be affected by. That was really a, a wonderful challenge. A lot of the story has to do with the, the shift from a kind of agrarian feudal world to an industrial world. So I thought a lot about those kinds of things. I had to learn a lot about plumbing. The book has a lot to do with plumbing, strangely enough, and waterworks, civil waterworks, in the early part of the 20th century. So I, I read a lot about that. I think any book that you write is, takes you into very weird places that you never thought you'd go, and that's part of the fun. You deliberately, I know you, you said in an interview that by defining time and place, the novel lost its character, which means at one point you might have been thinking, yeah. okay, you know, remaining in 1910 or something. Exactly. I mean, I'm interested in history. I'm interested in in how to draw story out of history. So, you know, for instance, in, in Little Nothing, there's a war, and I kept thinking, well, is it the First World War? Is it the Balkan Wars? Is it, you know, do I have, should I say what war it is? And whenever I did, whenever I kind of said, okay, I'm going to sort of tie it to this particular time and place, the story sort of lost some of its magic. And like the fables that we read, it needed to exist in this kind of anytime. I mean, when we read, you know, the Grimm's fairy tales or Hans Christian Andersen, they could take place 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 500 years ago. And there's, you know, there's always a soldier. There's always a war. There's a king and a queen and a peasant and a, you know. And I think what makes those stories so enduring is that they don't attach to a particular time and place. They're about something much deeper. They're about something that exists in all of us across time. So I sort of wanted to create that same quality for little nothing. To me, the moment you bring in cars and trucks, for a second there I lost it, and then I'm going, is that World War One? And then in the v a vision I had of Murnau's sunrise and the scenes in the city, mm -hmm. because those have the same kind of feel. Right. Well, I definitely wanted to move towards modernity in this book. You know, the girl in the book makes a number of transitions, and the world transitions. It was sort of fun to begin to seed in trucks. To, you know, in the countryside, there there's one truck amongst all the carts. There's, you know, a little bit of smoke. And then little by little, you end up in a city on a train, and suddenly you're in the middle of, you know, factories and, and that whole world that was actually existing at the same time. But if you were living in that kind of world in a village, you would not have been part of it. The book starts with the character Pablo. Then she winds up after the operation to stretch her she transforms, but not exactly the way she was. Each of these transformations and the character of Danilo who suddenly pops up, were those ever in the back of your mind or did they just rise from the unconscious and you went, okay, fine, I'll go with it? That's exactly, and I love that you said that because yes, they actually were not in my mind. I knew from the beginning that she would be stretched and that it would work. But then I had no clue what would happen. And I kind of just kept writing the story. And then when it got to a place where emotionally and what was happening to her seemed to, the pressure seemed to rise, it seemed time for her to transform. And then what was there for me was that she would turn into the next thing. And I didn't premeditate it. And I think that part of it is because I, I tend to resist a sort of premeditating my books. I sort of feel like when I decide what they're about, you know, in a big way, then the writing sort of doesn't become very interesting because I'm sort of driving the car very directly to the point. And I'm writing scenes that are supposed to fulfill an obligation to an idea. And I don't find that to be the most exciting literature. So I, I try to, as much as possible, allow myself not to know and to keep in the dark. And this one was easier than other books because I literally was in the dark with it most of the time. And then suddenly she would turn into something else. And I'd say, 
okay, well, let's go with that. Now we're in the world of wolves, and there we are. So I sort of surprised myself. I let my subconscious sort of rule the day. I know a lot of books, a lot of authors talk about how, you know, they sort of know the end of the voyage, but they're not sure how they're going to get there. And along the way, characters, you know, speak to them, and that's in quotes, of course. Mm -hmm. It seemed in little nothing that you had no idea on the voyage where it was going to go, or am I wrong? I'm so glad that that comes across in the writing. I really am, because that's true. I had no idea. I had no idea what would happen to her, what her final iteration would be. And the final the final change she makes is the most surprising and heartbreaking in a certain way. And I had no idea until I got there. I mean, it, it made for a very scary writing experience because I never had any idea that this would work. What if it hadn't? Oh, God. I don't know. I think when I have an idea, if it doesn't leave me, if it keeps sticking in my craw, no matter how hard the writing of it is, if I just keep saying, but I got to figure this out, I got to figure this out, then I feel like I will. And and I just keep at it until I do. Did you hit dead ends? Oh, constantly. I mean, constantly hit dead ends, constantly would say to friends and, you know, I don't think it's going to work or how could this happen or, you know, what does it mean? Because I really didn't know what it meant. I mean, I think the book actually has a lot of meaning about how we change over a lifetime. And I think it has a lot to do with how women's bodies are subject to a lot of violence and a lot of suppression and how women kind of endure through that. But I didn't think about any of that. I just thought it's about a girl who gets stretched and then she turns into this and then, oh, she turns into that. So I not only wasn't sure where it was heading, but I wasn't sure what it would all mean. Uh, that brings up the notion of themes. I read an interview and you talked about issues like women's body or the dissonance in fairy tales between the real and the fantastic. But when you were there working on it, that was not at all in your mind. No, what was on my mind was how do I tell the most interesting story? How do I keep these characters developing? How do I keep these relationships developing? How do I explore the worlds that I'm in? Just typical stuff that any writer is going to be doing. I mean, once you create your universe, no matter how fantastic it is, the concerns are the same. You want compelling characters who are on compelling journeys, and you want the, the stakes of what are they're, they're confronting to be high, and you want your reader to continue to want to turn the pages. Back when you were a director, was any of that on your mind as a director? Was this such a completely different operation that you didn't even think in those terms? Well, directing is a little bit different because usually the script is a fixed thing. You know, the story does not alter during the course of production. You didn't write your own. One of them I did, the first one, Old Enough. The things that are changing and are, are living and evolving are what actors bring to it and what a camera person brings to it. And that becomes the place where the piece grows. But in terms of the text, the text is sort of set. So I never had, I did not have that feeling. Then it does bring up the question, how does on some level that you can figure out, or perhaps, how does what you learned in your first career apply to the novels that you write in your second career? I think a sense of pacing, a sense of how to move from one scene to another, how to come into the middle of a scene and leave before it ends, how to build character incrementally over time. You don't start a book and, and tell a reader everything that they need to know about a character. You, you pay it out over time, and I think that's true also in film. So a lot of things are similar. I mean, a lot of the craft issues are not dissimilar. But at this point, you know, my filmmaking life was so long ago, and I think that probably I was 
to the extent that I am sophisticated now, whether or not you believe that, I think I was less sophisticated as a filmmaker. So I would say that whatever I've brought with me has been probably sharpened up a fair amount over these last 15 years. Marissa Silver, even though your parents were filmmakers, you grew up in New York, so you were not part of that scene. Did you pick up some of that stuff? I mean, you started very young. You know, your first, in your early 20s, yeah, mm-hmm. when you were still in college, you were, you were already doing this. Did you pick up stuff from your parents, or was it all pretty much on your own, what you were learning? Well, I, you know, I, I realized something not too long ago, oddly enough. I guess this has something to do with how solipsistic children are, but my parents included me in their process in a kind of remarkable way. I don't know. I think because I was interested, they had me read their scripts and they would show me the cuts of their films and I would get to sit in auditions with actors and sometimes I would read with the actors because they were making very low-budget films and I was cheap labor. <laughs> so I think that in some ways, more than anything, I think they made me feel that, that my aesthetic ideas were valuable. Whether I learned anything in particular, I don't know, but what I sort of learned was that what I thought might matter. And I think it's kind of a remarkable thing to do. I, now, when I look back on it, I think, wow, that's amazing that they did that for me. They made me think like my opinion mattered. Well, there's one other thing that I'm thinking of in terms of a book like Little Nothing is that when you're a director and you've got to make something work and the script doesn't tell you how to do that, you sort of have to fly by the seat of your pants. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what you did in Little Nothing. Yeah, although I think that What's fun about writing and why I do it now and not directing is it's fun to do it on your own. I like being by myself, I think. I think I like being in my room by myself, imagining this strange universe in which a dwarf can be stretched and then turn into all sorts of other things in which a a boy loves her despite all her changes and still persists in loving her. I think that for me to be by myself imagining that universe is, is a really satisfying thing. There's a character named Marcus in the second half of the book and we learn things about him. When that character first popped up, did you know who he was? Yeah. We can't spoil it for the audience. We're being a little bit teasing. But, yeah, I, I felt like I knew who he was, and I knew why he was there. The return to her village, mm-hmm. did you know how that was going to happen? Or, again, was that just, like, this is the way I'm writing, and there it is on the page, yeah, and, I oh, mean, did I do that? The wolf meets a soldier, and... The soldier deserts the war, and they end up back at the village of Pavla. And this is true probably for everything I write. I really am discovering my book as I write it. And I think that to the extent that the book is surprising to a reader, I think that has something to do with it, is that I allow myself to be surprised as I'm writing it. Uh, Did you find the same kinds of surprises in Mary Coyne, a more realistic novel? Yeah, I mean, I think the surprises in Mary Coyne had a little less to do with the movements of the plot because I was using um, a template, which were the lives of Dorothea Lang and, to a lesser extent, the woman in the famous photograph, Migrant Mother, whose name is Florence Owens Thompson. I was using a lot of the things that had happened to them as kind of tent poles. I mean, I invented a lot, a huge amount, which is why the book is called Mary Coyne and not anything else. But I think the invention in that came came in, in terms of the emotions, because I although I knew what happened in Dorothea Lange's life, and I was using some of that, I certainly had no access to her emotional life. And, and so the invention came in the form of the emotions. So if you go back to God of War, that's a little bit more like Little Nothing, because you can kind of 
take your characters wherever they're going to go. Yeah, well, that's it's not based on something in history, although it's a real novel that takes place in a particular part of California called the Salton Sea. And in some ways, you know, the God of War maybe is like little nothing in that it's a it's a strange kind of netherworld, the Salton Sea, where it's not a fable, but it could be. What was the decision to put little nothing in this Eastern European setting? You know, I think it came right away after I read that obituary because the the guy who had died had come from Bohemia, I think. And because the nature of that detail suddenly suggested to me fable and fable suggested to me, you know, Germany, Eastern Europe. And it felt like a place that was far enough away from our, my readers, my American readers, um, life that it could embrace the uncanny and the magical might have been harder to set a fairy tale in, you know, Nebraska. We know what Nebraska looks like, but we, you know, for those of us who are not as well-traveled, you know, we, we don't know that much about Eastern Europe. So it kind of allowed me to have a lot of latitude with invention. Reminded me a little bit of a book you might not have read called Buried Giant by Kazuo Ishiguro. Yes. I have not read it, although I've read many of his books, but yeah. There's a similarity yes, there. Yes, he took the fable form as well. A lot of authors have done it at one time or another. I mean, it's a wonderful thing because it, it sort of allows you to look at very real things in life, very real emotions, but to, to sort of exaggerate as a way to look at what's going on. It's sort of a different window into something that we all experience, but through a very exaggerated fashion. Well, when I spoke with him last year about the book, it was obvious that he had a lot of themes on his mind uh, about the nature of politics, whereas here it sounds as if afterward when you looked at the book and you said, oh, this is about women's bodies. Yeah, I mean, I knew it was about transformation because obviously she's transforming. And I knew that it was about how a person can exist no matter what the form is, how the, sort of the intractability of the soul and of character and of, of personality. You know, one of the things I thought a lot about was, you know, remember those old uh, science books we had? I don't know, they still have them with those transparencies and you oh, had sure. the, yeah. so I, I, I was thinking a lot about that. The first, you peel off the first layer and you get the, you know, the, 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 the arteries and the vein system, and then you peel that off and you get the next layer down. And I just kept thinking that, you know, if you layer by layer by layer, a person is, is the same and yet utterly in a different form. So I knew that going in, but I certainly hadn't thought about the implications about women's bodies as much. And, and I mean, so much violence is done to poor Pavla, and I'm the person who made that happen, and yet I wasn't saying to myself, I got to have a lot of you know bad things happen to her. It just was what happened to her. She's a girl who was hunted and at for the form, but every form she takes, she becomes somehow reviled. Sadly, that is the nature of a lot of women's lives. You know, women are reviled in certain ways because of being women. When you look back and reread the book and you're in those later drafts and trying to get it right, aside from that, was there anything else that really surprised you and made you go, wow, I can't believe I wrote that? That's a great question. I think that I was surprised by how deep a love story it is. Danilo is a young man who is actually stretches her, so he's actually part of the problem. But then he falls in love with her and sort of follows her through the book despite her changes through every iteration he somehow believes. And it really, I, when I read the book and I thought it's really about love, it's really about how we change throughout our lives and the people who we are in love with love us through those changes. 
I mean, if you have a long marriage, you're not the person you were at the beginning physically, emotionally, in, in many ways. And if you are loved by someone, they somehow manage to have faith in their love throughout those changes. So I think that sort of surprised me that that love story was there also. Marissa Silver, in the interview that I read, you mentioned a novelist I've never heard of, Agota Kristoff. Yeah. Who is or was Agota Kristoff, and what relationship does that individual have to a book like Little Nothing? She is a Hungarian writer who wrote these three, she wrote many novels. The three that are really important to me are called The Proof, The Notebook, and The Third Lot. They're about these twin brothers, and it's an allegory, and it's a really upsetting series of books about what these brothers go to to survive, and it's kind of an allegory about, you know, post-war, you know, government repression. And the brothers are both endearing, and they're horrific, and they they do awful things. And and at the end, by the end, you're not even sure if there were brothers or if it's one person. And we're looking into the we we sort of have a bifurcated soul. It's a really strange series of books, but they're really powerful, and they have the quality of a fable. They're told in a kind of fable-like quality, and so those were really inspirational to me. In an interview, you said that you're more concerned with questions than answers. Mm -hmm. And of course, in Little Nothing, there's a lot of questions. Is it easier or harder for you to kind of ask a question and know, you know, I'm not going to answer it. I'm not going to let the reader know. Is that scary? Well, I think it's only because I don't have the answer. If I had the answer, I would tell you. (laughs) (laughs) A book begins as a question for me. I mean, Mary Coyne began as why did this woman never tell people she was the woman in that photograph until she was sick and dying? What was that? Was she ashamed? Was she angry? What, right. There were so many things. And this book began, what happens when a child who's born with some kind of atypicality is forced to change? And what happens when the body is is not seen as being okay? And I don't have answers to that. I just have explorations. And I don't think a book to me isn't really satisfying when it gives an answer because then it sort of ends. And what what I love about the literature that I love is that you shut the page and you feel like your brain is just on fire and you're you're filled with new questions. You've opened new avenues of thought. And that's the exciting thing to me about literature. So I don't really – if I had the answer, I probably wouldn't have written the book. The book ends. How did you know that that was the end? There's nowhere else for her to go without giving anything away. And, you know, I always know when things end when I don't know how I know when a book ends. I know when a book ends when it just feels like this is the final question that sort of encompasses them all. And this book ends with Danilo and Marcus telling the story of what happened in the book. And that seemed like a way, a kind of circular, an ending that was also a beginning because it goes right back to the beginning of the story. The beginning of the stories about the midwife and the birth, was that always the beginning? Yes, that was always the beginning. That's how I started out. I started (laughs) out with the birth of this child from the point of view of the child, which, you know, automatically put me into this surreal landscape because I was writing about a birth from the point of view of the the unborn child. So once you start there, you know, the sky's the limit about what you can do. And at that point, of course, you thought that this character was going to be the point of view character for the book. Right. And it was only when I, you know, started introducing new characters that I suddenly brought in, you know, other Danilo in particular becomes a really important character who undergoes a lot of change, too. I mean, he starts out as a fairly diffident, uneducated young boy. And through this search for her and his sort of 
unyielding love for her really begins to understand what it means to love. Toward the end of the book, there's another transition, which we won't go into her element of it, but there's a prison popping up. Just curious, where did that come from? The previous chapter ends and suddenly we're in a prison. How did the prison suddenly appear? Do you remember? No, I don't, except for the last thing that happens to her is that the people that she's with are dead. And so it seemed like, well, she'll be accused of that murder and then she'll end up in a prison. So there was a certain logic to it. <laughs> I mean, the thing about this book is that there is an inner logic to it. And I think that what makes any fable work is that there is an inner logic. It may not be the logic that we're all you know, used to. And I think that if there weren't an inner logic, it wouldn't work. The other part of it, of course, is that, you know, when I talk to authors about characters talking to them, in this case, what you're saying is kind of, the book talked to me. It said to me, this will be the next step. Yeah, I mean, as, as they always do. I'm not, I'm, I, I've never had characters talk to me. I'm always curious about that because I feel like I'm making them up. I mean, they're actually a function of me. But definitely the book tells you where to go. As you write, you are discovering what the book is. And, and, you know, I don't know how to write except by discovering through writing. I can't sit and imagine a whole book and then sit, sit down and write it. At the Page by page, I'm discovering what my books will be. The idea behind a character telling you is more on the order of, I have Dorothea Lang, and I really want Dorothea Lang to walk into that room, but I can't figure out a way for her to walk into that room. Mm-hmm. I cannot find a way. She's going to go to the left because that's what the character does. And in well, that, that sense, the character is telling you, yes. I'm going to the right, not the left. Yes, that's true. And, and there have been many times when I've spent you know, days and days and days and days trying to get a character like out of the forest. And I just can't get him out of the forest. And, and it's because he isn't ready to leave the forest. <laughs> and that's what a character, yeah. <laughs> that's when a character is talking to you. Exactly. Marissa Silver, have you begun working on another novel? I haven't begun work on it. I've begun sort of the conceptualizing of it. When you talk about conceptualizing, are you just like talking about, okay, I've got an image or I've read an obit and haven't gone far much beyond that? I think I have an idea. I have a kind of milieu. I have a set of characters. I mean, I'm so at the beginning of it, it's hardly anything, but I sort of feel like, yeah, I, I want to spend three years in that world. So I feel confident that I'm. it's a world I want to enter into, and now I'll have to spend you know, a fair amount of time just lying on my bed, staring up at the ceiling, imagining. Well, what started God of War? God of War was started because I saw a photograph of two young boys in the Salton Sea, a, a photographer whose name I can't remember right now, did a series of beautiful photographs of that area. And there was this photograph of these two young boys. And some, I just thought, wow, what's it like to grow up there? And then you had to do some research. Then I, I had guess. to go down to the Salton Sea and check <laughs> it out. And, and then what? the questions got even bigger. Um, this is a little aside. What is the Salton Sea? I keep hearing about it. Oh, Where is it? What is it? The Salton Sea is east of Los Angeles, and it's an inland sea. And it's very salinated. And it's odd because it has no ingress or egress. So it, ultimately, it will evaporate. And there's often these huge fish die-offs every year because the salinization level is so high and something goes on with the algae. So it's a really strange piece of nature. And there are these communities around it that are sort of off-the-grid communities and some on-the-grid communities. But it's a, it's a stra- it's an unusual place to make your home. So it, it, a certain kind of person makes his or her home there. Which relates it back to the strangeness of little nothing. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm interested in 
people in pressurized situations. Certainly that's true of Mary Coyne, it's true of the God of War, and it's true of little nothing. Marissa Silver, coming back to your first profession and your second profession, has Hollywood or anyone else beckoned on any of your novels? You know, some of them have been optioned here and there. Nothing's ever been made. You know, if it happens, great. If it doesn't happen, I don't put a whole lot of stock into it, knowing a lot about how movies are made and how long it takes to get movies are ma made and how hard it is to make certain kinds of films. I am open to it, but I'm, I'm not spending my time working too hard to make it happen. If they approach you for the screenplay or direction, would you say no? I, I don't know. I, I, I my, my gut, my first feeling is like I wouldn't want to write it because I feel like I've spent all these years constructing, say, little nothing into this novel. And I've spent, you know, so much time thinking about the structure and then to sort of deconstruct it seems to be going backwards. So I don't know. Maybe I would and maybe it would be fun. But I, it, I think I want to write the next book and no directing. I, I'm not I'm not I don't want to do that anymore. You've retired. I've retired. You can find me in my bedroom. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>